The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, Ishers, it's Janie. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. I want to thank Fallon, Elizabeth B., and Holly H. for becoming Patreon supporters. Some of your dollars will be donated to a worthy nonprofit organization. Before I get into this case, I want to tell you all about an active murder case that needs your attention. Please listen up for the next couple of minutes. Joseph Padilla was a good friend of my best friend's son. Joseph, who's often referred to as Joe, was gunned down on the freeway on April 3rd just a couple of months ago. At around 9.45 that evening, Joe was driving his 2014 BMW on the South 210 Freeway in Redlands, California. He was being pursued by the driver of a white, lifted Chevy Silverado truck that may have had black rims. Law enforcement believes this may have been a road rage incident. The driver of the white Chevy truck shot at the driver's side of Joe's vehicle several times, and Joe was fatally wounded. Joe's BMW came to a stop at the transition road to the eastbound Interstate 10 freeway. The suspect in the white Chevy truck fled the scene, and today he has still not been identified. Law enforcement gathered several 9mm fired cartridge casings at the scene. As of today, we don't have a description of the shooter or his or her license plate number. Joe Padilla's family and friends need your help to bring justice in his case. As many of you know, I'm from the Inland Empire area in Southern California, and I know many listeners of this podcast also reside in that area. Please, if you or anyone you know may have useful information, do not hesitate to contact the investigators in Joe's case. Please send any and all tips, big or small, to Investigator Benuelos at 909-731-2028 or Investigator Smith at area code 951-232-6929. I have a photo of Joe Padilla as well as a photo of a truck that looks similar to the one driven by the suspect posted at the top of the Murderish Facebook group. If you're not currently a member of the group, please search Murderish Podcast in Facebook and you'll find it. It's a Facebook group, not a public Facebook page. I've also posted this information on Instagram. You can find me on Instagram at Murderish Podcast. Joe's friends and family are using the hashtag JusticeForJoe on Twitter, so you can also find information there. My best friend told me that Joe was a good person and a great friend to her son. He had his whole life ahead of him, and now he'll never be able to accomplish the goals he set out for himself because someone took that away. Let's do what we can to bring justice in Joe's case. This case is solvable. We have a description of the suspect's truck. Do you know anyone who drives that kind of truck or lives in or around the Inland Empire? If you do, contact investigators. If you've heard rumors or anything at all being spoken about Joe's case, call that information in. No tip is too small. Thank you so much for your help in getting justice for Joe. Now, let's get into today's case. One woman risked life and limb to escape the grips of a predator. Her goal was simply to make it home to her children alive. There was no way she could have known that ensuring her attacker was found would reveal so much more. Her actions very likely saved many lives. 
In working with authorities, this woman was able to uncover her attacker for what he truly was, a serial killer. Join me as I walk you through the case involving Sandra Sapaw. takes us to Harris County, Texas, an area encompassing Houston, Bel Air, Pasadena, and Humble, Texas. Harris County is located close to the Galveston Coast, a popular weekend road trip destination for some. Though everything is bigger in Texas, including its urban cities, towns just outside of those cities can be incredibly rural. Towns with barely a grocery store for its residents are abundant just outside the larger city limits. This case takes us to one of those small pit stop towns just outside of the Houston city limits in Webster, Texas. Webster, having only a population of 10,000 people, is small, semi-rural, and typically a safe and calm place to live. Although home to Brooklyn Nine-Nine star Stephanie Beatrice, nothing of much notability or excitement seems to happen in Webster. However, the town was rattled to its core when it was discovered that a predator was living in its midst. In May of 1997, Sandra Sapaw was a recent graduate of Clear Springs High School, and she'd been working as a topless dancer. Sandra stood at an average height and had short brown hair and gorgeous brown eyes. At 19 years of age and with two other children at home, Sandra was pregnant with her third child. Those around the young mother described her as strong and tenacious. These qualities proved vital for Sandra as her strength and quick thinking would ultimately be qualities that saved her life and subsequently opened a can of worms on other horrific crimes. On May 17th of 1997, authorities received a phone call from an obviously traumatized woman. Frantically, This woman, later identified as Sandra Sapaw, explained the horrors she had just lived through as she begged for help. After an attempted kidnapping, she had flung herself out of a fast-moving vehicle. She was in desperate need of medical attention. Even so, Sandra thought ahead and immediately contacted law enforcement to report the crime. She was not going to allow this predator to harm anyone else if she could help it. After reporting the crime, Sandra was taken to a local hospital where she was treated for her wounds and interviewed by police. Though she was cognizant enough to alert the authorities, the injuries that Sandra sustained after leaping out of the moving vehicle made her memory foggy. Details that would be helpful to the investigation were lost into her subconscious mind. She was able to offer up some information about the crime, but those details were minimal. Despite this, Sandra's memory would later become a much more helpful tool in the investigation with the help of hypnosis. Ladies, if you're running out of clean and comfy clothes, try switching things up by putting on a pair of Beta Brand's dress pant yoga pants. 
These pants are just as comfy as your PJs, but they are not pajamas. They're stylish, professional pants that flatter your figure. On the Beta Brand website, you'll find plenty of styles and colors to choose from, and new styles are launched weekly. I love Beta Brand dress pant yoga pants because they're extremely cute, and I can literally do a cartwheel in them and not have to adjust my pants after I land. These pants do not wrinkle easily, and their stretch-knit fabric allows for all-day wear without the discomfort your old dress pants bring. Beta Brand has mastered the art of creating stylish workwear that is just as comfortable as your favorite pair of yoga pants. Right now, our listeners can get 25% off their first order when you go to betabrand.com murderish. That's 25% off your first order for a limited time at betabrand.com murderish. Find out why women are buying five different pairs of these pants. Go to betabrand.com murderish for 25% off. During this pandemic, grocery stores are running out of some of my favorite items. If you're experiencing the same thing, try Sunbasket. They deliver delicious and healthy meals right to your house, and they have options to fit a variety of diets like paleo, gluten-free, vegetarian, and more. And they make it so easy with pre-portioned ingredients that include clean ingredients and organic produce. Look, I'm not a master chef. If I can cook Sunbasket meals, anyone can. With Sunbasket, you can cook meals like roasted salmon with miso-glazed eggplant. Yum. Sunbasket is right up my alley because their meals are convenient, easy to cook, delicious, and they're made with clean ingredients. Right now, Sunbasket is offering $35 off your order when you go right now to sunbasket.com murderish and enter promo code murderish at checkout. That's sunbasket.com slash murderish and enter promo code murderish at checkout for $35 off your order. Sunbasket.com slash murderish and enter promo code murderish. Initially, police had very little to go on in regard to suspects. Sandra's foggy memory of the incident due to her head injuries made the investigation difficult. This is when investigators in Webster decided to try a new angle. They brought in Tiki Island Police Chief Sue Dietrich, who could potentially put Sandra in a position to reveal more about the crime, and this would be through hypnosis. According to Dietrich, hypnosis is a simple way to get the conscious mind out of the way to allow knowledge of the subconscious mind to take over. After being hypnotized, Sandra was able to recall her kidnapping in tremendous detail. Not only was she able to recall the make, model, and color of the truck she was forced into, she was also able to remember the face of her kidnapper. This was a huge break in the case, and information provided by Sandra matched one of the theories authorities had regarding potential suspects. A few weeks after Sandra underwent hypnosis, she was requested to identify her assailant in a police lineup. She identified a man named William Lewis Reese. William Reese was known in and around Harris County, Texas. His criminal record and odd behavior created for him quite a reputation with local authorities. Reese had noticeably red hair and usually had a full beard, a distinction that would later come into play. In 1996, Reese had been released from prison after being convicted of the sodomy and kidnapping of two young women. He only served 10 years of his 25-year sentence 
due to inappropriate remarks made by the prosecution. Interestingly, as soon as Reese was released from prison, there seemed to be a spike in the number of cases involving missing women and rape victims. The spike was seen along I-35 and I-45, which began in Oklahoma and extended all the way down into southeast Texas. This stretch of highway coincided with the places Reese was known to live, work, and frequently travel. Reese worked on construction sites, which had him traveling up and down I-35. There were multiple crimes that occurred before Sandra's kidnapping, of which police considered Reese a suspect due to his criminal background. However, there was never enough evidence in those crimes to create a solid case against him. After Sandra was kidnapped and identified Reese as her attacker, authorities were finally able to further pursue the man they knew was terrorizing their area for quite some time. After Reese was identified as a suspect in Sandra's case, investigators worked hard to stack up even more evidence, including witness statements, in order to build an ironclad case against him. Though he could only be directly connected to the crime against Sandra, authorities knew he was responsible for many more heinous crimes. They were determined to pluck Reese out of society as quickly as possible to avoid anyone else being harmed. In time, Law enforcement arrested Reese in connection with the crime against Sandra. His bond was set at $200,000, and he would eventually go on trial for the crime. Opening statements in Reese's trial began on Wednesday, April 29th of 1998, with State District Judge Jan Crocker presiding. The prosecution was led by Ted Wilson, with defense attorney Anthony Oso defending William Reese, who was indicted on the charge of aggravated kidnapping and faced up to 60 years in prison if found guilty. Though Sandra Sapow was going to testify for the prosecution, there still seemed to be many circumstances surrounding the case that would be difficult for them to overcome. The defense did its job and presented information to the jury that could very well have made them doubt Reese's guilt. The prosecution was fully aware that there would be at least some mistrust of the statements Sandra made while under hypnosis. Sue Dietrich, the officer who completed the hypnosis and then interviewed Sandra, explained for the jury that your subconscious mind stores memories that your conscious mind may not have immediate access to. On the witness stand, Sandra recounted for the jury what took place the day of her kidnapping. She explained that she was at a Waffle House in Webster, Texas, where she stopped to grab a bite to eat. When she walked out to where her car was parked, Sandra noticed that her tire had been slashed. Not seeing anyone around, Sandra began trying to figure out what to do next. It was at this time that a man approached her, saying that he noticed her tire was flat and he came over to help. The man told her he had some tools in his truck and asked if she could help him retrieve them. Sandra followed the man to his truck. He then pulled out a knife and held it in her direction. He directed Sandra to silently get into his truck. Terrified for her life and the life of her unborn child, she got into the truck without fighting. The kidnapper then began driving, leaving Sandra's car with one flat tire at the Waffle House parking lot. In the Waffle House parking lot, Sandra told the jury that as her kidnapper was driving down the road, he once again pointed the knife at her 
and told her to start getting undressed. That was the moment that she knew that if she did not try to escape, she would never make it home. It was at this point that she unlocked the passenger side door, opened it, and threw herself out of the moving vehicle. She sustained significant injuries, but said that this action is ultimately what saved her life. Sandra testified that had she not been so drastic in her escape, her kidnapper would have become her murderer. The details she provided regarding her kidnapper perfectly matched William Reese. When asked if her kidnapper was in the room, Sandra replied, yes, and pointed directly at the defendant, whose beard was now turning gray. To further bolster their case, the prosecution brought in the victims of Reese's prior kidnapping and sodomy convictions. On the stand, they were asked to recount their experience with Reese. One victim testified how her story matched up almost perfectly to Sandra's. She was having car trouble, so she stopped on the side of the road to investigate. Reese approached her and offered to assist. When she obliged and allowed him to take a look, he pulled out a knife and directed her to get into his car. He kidnapped and raped her before she eventually escaped. Calling Reese's previous victims to testify greatly helped the prosecution's case, as this established his M.O. Laura Smither, a 12-year-old living in Friendswood, Texas, was kidnapped, raped, murdered, and dumped in a lake a few miles from her house. The M.O. in this crime matched the M.O. in the other crimes of which Reese had been convicted. In addition, the physical description of Smither was similar to Reese's other victims. Because of these similarities, police identified Reese as their prime suspect in the case involving 12-year-old Laura Smither. Because of this connection, Laura Smither's parents decided to attend Reese's trial to glean any information they could that may shed light on their daughter's murder. Before the trial began, Anthony Oso, Reese's defense attorney, heard of the Smithers' plans to attend the trial and he immediately objected to their presence. Oso argued that the only thing that would be accomplished by their presence would be persuading the jury to further believe in Reese's guilt, without regard for the evidence or arguments being presented. He pleaded with the judge to bar the Smithers from attending the trial. Judge Crocker, however, ruled that trials are public and that the presence of the Smithers would not sway the opinion of the jury. Laura Smithers' family did as they said, and attended every single public hearing involving William Reese. The prosecution also brought in witnesses who saw Reese near the location of Sandra's kidnapping. These witnesses were asked to describe the physical appearance of the man they believed to have seen, the time they saw him, and his actions. One woman testified that she saw Reese at a grocery store right across from the Waffle House from where Sandra was taken. The woman said she saw Reese right before the time Sandra remembers being kidnapped. Getting a degree is difficult if you work, have children, or other obligations. Still, many people want to advance their education but struggle to figure out how to go about it. Enter the University of Texas at El Paso or UTEP. UTEP has a number of fully online degree programs that are affordable. With one of the lowest tuition rates in the UT system, UTEP makes getting a degree much more attainable. 
After you enroll, UTEP assigns every student a point of contact to guide you through the entire process from enrollment to graduation. The UTEP team also works closely with people who are entering school after their military service to ensure their success. UTEP is accepting applications now. For information, go to online.utep.edu or call UTEP Connect at 1-800-684-UTEP. With UTEP Connect, higher education is attainable for anyone. That's online.utep.edu or call 1-800-684-UTEP. The defense worked tirelessly to prove that Reese was not responsible for the kidnapping of Sandra Sapaw. Before the case even began, the defense tried to make Reese's prior criminal record inadmissible as evidence. Because his prior convictions were related in nature to the crime for which he was on trial, the relevancy of his past convictions was considered to be important and therefore admissible during trial. After his two prior victims testified in court, the defense addressed the jury and explained to them that his previous criminal charges, for which he had already served time, bear no witness on his current state of guilt. They asserted that the crimes he committed in his past were behind him, and dragging up old offenses proved nothing. They went on to say that the previous crimes were only brought up to prejudice the jury against Reese. In response to Sandra's testimony, the defense called into question the legitimacy and authenticity of her story. Because she was hypnotized, the defense argued that many factors could have tainted Sandra's memory. Reese had recently been named as a suspect in a murder that occurred very close to Webster. Perhaps his image and name could have been on her mind because of those stories. Could Sandra's memory be trusted, the defense asked. If it had to be dug up with a technique that may or may not be accurate and ethical, hypnosis opens one up to susceptibility, perhaps, the defense alleged. Authorities used this hypnotic technique to suggest to Sandra that Reese was responsible for her kidnapping. There were many different scenarios presented by the defense that suggested Sandra's memory of her own kidnapping were not as clear as they may seem to her. The defense also argued that Reese was being used as a scapegoat by law enforcement, who had numerous kidnapping, murder, and missing persons cases piling up at the time. Was it possible that the case count was so high that law enforcement was willing to send an innocent man to prison just to lighten the caseload? The defense worked hard to convince the jury that Reese was the fall man for a faulty police department who cared more about closing cases than they cared about putting the right perpetrator behind bars. Lastly, the defense countered witness testimony by finding discrepancies in their statements. The woman who testified that she had seen a man matching Reese's description had apparently overestimated the height of the man she saw, giving a much taller height to authorities than Reese's actual height. This, the defense argued, should be enough proof that either this woman did not actually see the defendant in the store or should prove that police were coaching the woman regarding how to describe the man she saw. All of these things, the defense alleged, should give the jury reasonable doubt regarding Reese's involvement in the kidnapping of Sandra Sapaw. With the lack of physical evidence, a testimony given under odd circumstances and physical description details that didn't match up 
the defense had poked holes in the prosecution's case. When the jury began deliberations, people seemed unsure regarding what the verdict would be. With Sandra's testimony and Reese's criminal history, the prosecution believed this would be enough to secure a conviction. They relied on hypnosis for Sandra to recount what happened, and the defense pointed this out as a significant weakness in the prosecution's case. It took the jury about five hours to reach a conclusion. Everyone was brought back into the courtroom to hear the verdict. On Friday, May 8th of 1998, William L. Reese was found guilty of aggravated kidnapping. The following Monday, Reese was sentenced to 60 years in prison with the possibility of parole after 30 years. With the case closed, law enforcement was happy to have gotten such a dangerous person off the streets, and citizens felt safer in their community. However, the immense impact that Reese had on the Harris County community and others was only just being discovered. In the years that followed, Reese would reveal secrets that he had spent his whole life keeping. Around the time that Reese kidnapped Sandra Sapa, the practice of DNA testing was not common. Other crimes that occurred in the 1990s, of which Reese could very well have been the perpetrator, were left unsolved. In the mid-2000s, however, when DNA testing became more prevalent, those cold cases were dusted off. Through DNA testing, the cases were able to break. One case is believed to have been the breaking point for Reese, the point at which he decided it was time to talk. Tiffany Johnson was a 19-year-old wife, a newlywed who had been married for just over three months. On July 26th of 1997, Tiffany was washing her car at a car wash when she was approached by a man. At knife point, the man led her to his truck. They drove away and the man later raped and strangled Tiffany before hiding her body in some tall weeds on the banks of a lake. Tiffany's body was found the following day. DNA evidence was found and tested at the time. However, results were inconclusive. The case went cold for years, until detectives reopened it in 2015. At that time, they were able to test another DNA sample left on Tiffany's body, and this sample matched the DNA of an already imprisoned William Lewis Reese. When approached with this damning information, Reese, along with his attorney, agreed that in order to avoid the death penalty, in Tiffany Johnson's case, he would plead guilty to her murder. Reese also agreed to cooperate with authorities to close other cases in which he was involved. Based on his confessions, authorities were able to close multiple cases and reveal William Lewis Reese for what he truly was, a serial killer. Authorities conditionally agreed to Reese's proposition, and they began working closely with him. He led them to an area in Houston, one that had been known to locals as the Texas Killing Fields. This area of land was notorious for criminal activity and the discovery of bodies. In this area, Reese paced the fields and noted for the authorities where he thought the bodies of his victims might be buried police were able to dig up the fields and discovered the skeletal remains of Kelly Cox and Jessica Kane. Kelly Cox was a psychology major 
at the University of North Texas in Denton at the time of her murder in July of 1997. 20-year-old Kelly had an 18-month-old baby girl who her parents took care of while she was taking classes and working. On July 15th of 1997, Kelly took a tour of the Denton County Prison with her criminology class. When she left the prison and walked out to her car, she realized that the key she had stashed under her tire was not unlocking the door. Kelly walked to a gas station nearby to call her boyfriend to get a ride home. Her boyfriend told her he would be there as soon as he could, and he was able to get to her location within the hour. However, when he got to the gas station, there was no sign of Kelly. He went to the location where she told him she had parked her car, but she wasn't there either. No one heard from Kelly after she made that call at the gas station. For years, her parents wondered where she could be and if she was being harmed, all the while still caring for their granddaughter, the daughter that Kelly left behind. When Reese confessed to murdering Kelly Cox and led authorities to her body, her parents and daughter finally had the answers they had been searching for. Jessica Kane, whose remains were found in the same area as Kelly's, was an avid theater performer from Tiki Island, a town near Galveston. On the night of her disappearance, in August of 1997, she was heading home from a cast party. Jessica was driving a beige 1992 Ford pickup, which was later found on the side of I-45. Her phone and wallet were still inside. Like Kelly Cox's disappearance, the investigation into Jessica Kane's disappearance didn't get very far. There was almost nothing to go off of, and her body was never discovered. Reese's confession was the first break authorities had in her case. Jessica's body was uncovered in the Houston field, identified, and then promptly returned to her family for a proper funeral. I don't know that closure is ever achieved when a loved one is murdered, but the families of Reese's victims, at the very least, were able to lay their loved ones to rest. William Reese has since been indicted for the murders of Laura Smither, Tiffany Johnson, Kelly Cox, and Jessica Kane. Currently, he is awaiting trial in Oklahoma for the murder of Tiffany Johnson. Once that trial has concluded, he will be extradited back to Texas to stand trial for the murders of Laura Smither, Kelly Cox, and Jessica Kane. Sandra's story of survival is extraordinary, and her brave escape from a serial killer most certainly saved the lives of an unknowable amount of women. Her bravery also allowed for other vicious crimes to be solved, providing answers to families who had longed to know what happened to their loved ones. Thanks again for joining me on this episode of Murderish. If you'd like more info about the show or me, go to Murderish.com. On the website, you can sign up to support Murderish through Patreon and have some of your dollars donated to a worthy nonprofit organization. The website also has a link to buy Murderish t-shirts and other merchandise. That's Murderish.com. If you want to connect on social media, head over to the Murderish Facebook discussion group. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod and on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. If you like the show, hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening now and tell a friend about Murderish. I'd love for you to leave the show a review in your favorite podcast app. 
Murderish is mixed and mastered by John and Jessica Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music is by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Lincoln Edgman. In order to tell true crime stories on this show, information is gathered from various sources. Stick around after the outro music if you'd like to hear a list of sources used for this episode. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Sources for this episode include Attorney Fights Evidence in Webster Kidnapping by the Victoria Advocate on April 28th of 1998, Marla Carter and KTRK, Kidnapping Victim Hypnotized to Recall Details About Attacker, an ABC 13 Houston KTRK article dated December 15th of 2017, an article in the Galveston Daily News dated April 22nd of 1998, an article on KFOR.com by Kay Carey dated June 21st of 2016. Another article by Kay Carey at KFOR.com dated April 11th, 2016. An article in the Austin American Statesman dated May 12th of 1998. An article in the Dallas Morning News Interactives dated May 3rd, 2016. An article by Carter Thompson in the Galveston Daily News dated October 22nd, of 1997.